The Heal Podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. Heal stands for healthy eating and living, so why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called life. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Gary Fecky is an orthopaedic surgeon practicing in Launceston, Tasmania. He has a major interest in preventative medicine and encourages his patients to lose weight before undergoing surgery. Although his specialty is surgery, Gary believes it is much better to help people avoid surgery, if at all possible, by taking preventative measures, which often include altering the diet. In recent years, Gary has focused on the role of the diet in the development of diabetes, obesity and cancer. He has been speaking out on the combined role of sugar, fructose and refined carbohydrates as well as polyunsaturated oils, linking them together to be behind inflammation and modern disease. He has incurred the wrath of regulatory bodies for his stand on public health, but he and his wife Belinda remain active, defending the benefits of low-carb, healthy fat living. Their ongoing work has uncovered the vested interests and ideologies shaping nutritional guidelines at an international level. It was with great pleasure that we have Gary and Belinda on the podcast today. To find out more about Gary and Belinda, visit isupportgary.com. That's I-S-U-P-P-O-R-T-G-A-R-Y.com. Gary and Belinda, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you both? Very well, thanks, Pete. And I'll let Belinda speak for me as well. We're yeah. both very well. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Gary, this is the second time you've been on. The- this could be the entire podcast. Belinda will speak for me. I'll just nod. <laughs> Fantastic. Whatever whatever flows, I'll, I'm just going to ask you some questions and however it unfolds, it unfolds. But uh, Gary, thank you so much for joining us for the second time and Belinda for the very first time. And I guess we should start off with exactly your relationship together and and how this came to be, this, this wonderful marriage that you two both have. 
Well, we're coming up for our 35-year wedding anniversary, and um, we were at school together, fairly rough and tumble school in Sydney, and actually met whilst we were at school when one of my best mates asked Belinda out. I think I was in year 10. Year 11, Belinda was in grade year 9, and yeah, I went along in his, as his wingman, and then he asked me what I thought about her, and I said, well, she's a skinny little runt. And um, a few years later, we uh, ultimately met again, and uh, a few years later got married, and in the wedding book he said, thanks for stealing the skinny little runt. <laughs> I filled out. <laughs> and um, so that, that was when we were, we were 16 and 18, and we've just had a great fun time, and so... Uh, Belinda's had my back for all of this. She's had my, she's given me an enormous amount of support. And as some of your listeners will know, I was effectively silenced by uh, for speaking up about uh, the perils of sugar, refined carbs, and uh, polyunsaturated oils. And effectively, what we've you know, both been talking about along a similar vein for many years is if you eat real food, you'll avoid a lot of chronic disease. And that's really the issue uh, that I got hammered by. And in retrospect. Uh, with what Belinda's works come across is that she was saying for years, you know, we're all talking about the science of eating real food and good nutrition and health. Why is that message not getting out there? And Belinda's research uncovered the influence of the cereal industry directly in my case, where in 2014 there were internal documents from the cereal industry, the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturing Forum, which is the CEOs of Sanitarium, Kellogg's, Nestle, Freedom Foods and Food and Grocery Council meet, sit down and have lunch together at Concord Golf Club every three months. And there was a briefing document that you'll be aware of that said that the concepts of paleo and low-carb were affecting cereal sales in Australia and that these people were to be uh, targeted and uh, your name was on that list and my name was on that list and as the only medical practitioner in Australia so Belinda's work has been uncovering not just those internal documents from the, uh, the cereal industry, but the whole influence of vested interests and particularly those corporate and ideological ones which have been shaping dietary guidelines forever. But at a personal level, her work helped me get off, you know, ultimately after you know, the charges that I had with APRA and four and a half years of investigations and, and, and appeals. The thing is, Pete, the mama bear came out when they started harassing my husband and wouldn't let go. And as Gary said, he, was, he all the guys from Low Carb Down Under, I mean, we met you at one of the Low Carb Down Under meetings years ago, and everyone was talking about the science. And I just went, wait a minute, they don't care about the science. You guys are turning blue in the face and nobody's, I mean, the public are listening, but the people who are writing the guidelines and the rule books are not listening and don't care about the science. So... I did. I, I just went into a deep dive in cyberspace. I just started looking to see why all this was happening. And I uncovered a lot of the vested interests, but discovering religious ideology was part of it was a very unexpected discovery, I guess, in my research. And for two years, Gary and I didn't speak about it publicly. I just kept looking. And the reason I went there is because the expert witness that the APRA Medical Board used to decide that Gary couldn't speak about something as simple as sugar to his patients with diabetes complications um, was working for sanitarium at the time. So that made me very suspicious, and I was, but I still didn't connect the fact that sanitarium is wholly owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
and as such pays no tax. I still didn't really connect a lot with the church at that point until I kept going further and further. And it wasn't until about two years down the track that I had enough information to say, wait a minute, this is part of it. The um, Seventh-day Adventist Church are very anti-meat. And I think it's really important for you and your listeners and everyone else to know, neither Gary nor I are anti-vegan or anti-religion. We might challenge the efficacy of a vegan diet being nutritious without requiring supplementation as an omnivorous diet and, and low-carb, healthy fat, paleo diets can be. But we're not anti those things. We're respectful of people's beliefs and their choice. But these people are making guidelines. They're involved in cereal industry. They're involved in diabetes associations and Heart Foundation and Cancer Council, involved in dietetics, as you mentioned before. Seventh-day Adventist Church, a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, started the American Dietetics Association in 1917. And these guidelines and their influence of an anti-meat religious ideology has become stronger and stronger throughout history. And, and that Seventh-day Adventist lady was named by Lena Cooper, and she had been working with John Harvey Kellogg's up until that time. Mm. So the, the influence of the cereal industry and the Adventist church uh, was right there at the beginnings of this, the yeah. Dietetics Association or the American one. And then every Western Dietetics Association followed suit taking the American model. And Lena Cooper was also instrumental so, because she was writing the textbooks for dietetics for the next 30 years. She was the first U.S. Army dietitian. She started the Department of Health in the NIH, National Institutes for Health in America. I mean, unbelievable positions some of these people had. And as Gary mentioned, John Harvey Kellogg started the cereal industry that we're aware of. You know, Kellogg's was the biggest cereal that exploded onto the market in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and is still around today. And he developed flaked wheat and flaked cereal. In fact, all of the inventions that he had, 30 patents on food and exercise equipment, was all about stopping people from masturbating. He also invented the first meat alternatives, the nut meat analogues. And soy, milk, and soy so meat. And soy meat. And then the Adventist Church are largely responsible well, they had 101 cereal companies were born around Battle Creek, Michigan, which is the home of the event, or one of the major homes of the Adventist Church, Battle Creek, Michigan Sanitarium, Battle Creek Sanitarium. So the Adventist Church, with the cereal industry, were instrumental right at the beginning of our dietary guidelines, and they effectively also bought soy into the US. So they pretty well owned the soy industry, and they're heavily involved in the alternative meat industry. And this group have been instrumental in writing the dietary guidelines of the world and influencing them for a hundred years now. And so I talk about generational education and that people, we believe our teachers and, and, and we believe the teachers before them. So this has been going for a hundred years and it's completely entrenched in our, in our history that we need to have cereals and grains and it formed the basis of the, of the food pyramid for a long time and still has a major component of the food guidelines, the eat plate and uh, out of my plate in the US, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, right, right across the Western world, that influence has been sitting there quietly burning itself into our memory banks for 100 years. So it's just fascinating to go back and find out how the whole process started and then where it's up to now, which is 
our food guidelines are rapidly becoming uh, plant-based c- Garden of Eden diet. Yeah. <laughs> Cereal-based, anti-meat, mm. anti-dairy, and uh, you know, pro-vegetarian. As Belinda says, it's a plant-based guideline, and you know, modelled on the Garden of Eden diet, which is what the Adventist Church has been advocating since its inception. Again, the Adventist Church believe in the literal six-day creation of Earth, so there is no hunter-gatherer in their belief system. So there was never any role for meat. Um, the Garden of Eden was purely fruits, nuts and seeds. And, and, and not vegetables or legumes. No, not until after the fall. But it, it was really taking it right back to there is a really interesting discussion to have with people that there was no role for meat. And Ellen G. White, one of the founders of the church, in 1863 she had a vision from God telling her that meat defiled the body, that meat was a carnal sin, that it stopped purification and sanctification of the body. And again, John Harvey Kellogg was 12 years old when he first worked for the Whites, Ellen G. White and her husband James, and he was involved in typesetting the very first book she wrote for mothers. And this was about not putting meat on the plate, not serving meat to your children as a way of curbing animal desires and baser passions and self-vice, which was literally masturbation. So he spent his life trying to work out how to stop this because he worked for them for four years from the age of 12 to the age of 16, you know, being involved in all of this messaging, which is pretty huge for a child. Just imagine being entrenched in the 1860s as a child being moved into a very senior position within their church and their they community. They paid for him to study medicine. And they supported his medical degree. And here he was typesetting books about masturbation. And it must have influenced him. Well, it did. Clearly, it shaped him for life. And as a result of that, our food guidelines today have that sixth birthplace. That's still being influenced. There was an article written in 2018 by a guy called Joan Sabat, who's actually on the U.S. Dietary Guidelines Committee for the 2020 Guidelines. He's a devout Seventh-day Adventist, and he wrote an article or co-authored an article called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet in August 2018. And it's fascinating. He actually states in it that nutrition science coincides with the advent of the Adventist Church. When you discovered this, I mean, you were silenced, Gary, and you discovered that the person that was speaking out against you was working at the time for sanitarium. Did you actually know about this rabbit hole then that you've been down? No. No, not at, not at all. No idea. No idea. This, was, this has been nearly five years of research, and it started when Gary was first. I started going down this rabbit hole when Gary was first um, reported. But it isn't just the church. A lot of people get stuck with the 1977 McGovern report and Ansel Keys and, and talk about all of those, you know, the sugar industry that was definitely influencing that McGovern report. But people don't aren't aware. I've really gone to say, well, how was the church involved with that McGovern report as well? And um, Nathan Pritikin was an adjunct professor at a Seventh-day Adventist um, church-owned university. And... He was a speaker. He was invited to present at that report. So then going back further, the actual alignment or the 
the partnership between Seventh-day Adventist Church and I would say the food industry specifically as a commercial entity came about in 1948 when a guy called Mervyn Harding went to do his doctoral dissertation at Harvard University under Fred Stair, who's been found to be very involved with the sugar industry. And Fred Stair's family owned the Continental Canning Company. So they canned fruit and back then fake meats, vegetables, all of those things. So there's a real alignment happening between this doctoral dissertation. It was when Mervyn Harding first started talking about the Adventist Health Studies. And ever since then, Harvard School of Public Health, which has been founded and funded with food industry money, and Loma Linda, which has no conflicts of interest because they're doing research for purpose, they've been intricately tied together. And it's fascinating to see how where we've come to now and what you shared the other day on your Facebook page was the um, medical education that I've uncovered. You would know full well that the dietitians associations worldwide have been um, sponsored and partnering with food industry and Coca-Cola and Pepsi and whomever else for decades. But understanding that there's a medical education now being co-written by members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church through this lifestyle medicine movement and um, Coca-Cola is very, very concerning. And so I think that's why I put out my post and thank you for sharing it because we've seen what the demonization of saturated fats for the last 50 years has done. We've seen Gary get silenced. We've seen you hammered. We've seen so many people just demonized. It's, it's unbelievable, this saturated fat that's so important for our health. And now if this next education gets through, not only will medical students fear fat, they'll fear animal proteins as well. And because of Coke's influence, it'll minimize the harms of sugar. And so I call it the Garden of Eden diet with a side of Coke. Mm. And it is a very real prospect of it happening. It's already in eight of the medical schools in the U.S., being trialled partly in another 20 or more, and they're pushing for it to start in Australia. So we've got to stop this. This is ridiculous. I want to take a step back then because you were working with dietitians in Tasmania that were promoting a low-carb approach at a clinic that you helped set up. Is that correct? Let's come back one little step closer, you know, further back is that I was still being silenced when I was just trying to help my patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. And my story started with all the you know, my patients with out-of-control diabetes and particularly foot problems, and I was having to trim bits of feet and trim bits of ankles and below-knee amputations. And I found out that my patients in hospital were being given three serves of ice cream per day. Mm. And I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is how it all started. And then they said, well, they can be given that because that's the guidelines. So you know, it all stems from the very simple concept of let's try and give people the best food possible in hospitals and start taking junk food out. Uh, it's not that long ago uh, when I was a medical student that the hospital, you know, pink ladies, the volunteer workers, were running around the hospitals with trolleys selling cigarettes to the patients on the ward and the patients were smoking on the ward. And at some point in time we worked out that that wasn't a good idea and we needed to set a better example in hospitals. And here we are now. That's what I was advocating for. So we set up a team at Nutrition for Life 2014, right in the midst of all this cereal industry influence. 
And a young dietitian uh, came to me and said, what do you think about low-carb and diabetes? And I thought, this is you know, an angel that's come out of the, out of the clouds, <laughs> someone with insight. And I said, congratulations for actually having some insight. Would you like to open up a centre so we can actually provide a re- resource to the community? And also remembering Gary was being investigated, so he couldn't talk about it. So this meant that he could have a dietitian that was accredited who potentially could support his patients. And that's all, all we try to do is say, let's provide this for the people so that they can actually move forward with professional you know, dietetic advice. Individual. But our staff came under enormous pressure from their own association. The Dietitians Association were watching them like hawks. They um, were writing letters to them. They weren't allowed to use the words low carb. On the website. On the website. They were, um, it all had to be part of a balanced, individualised approach. Ultimately, we ended up having three accredited dietitians working with us, and, and they and a diabetes educator, all of which were copying pressure. And these were were brave young women, are brave young women. Then two of them have actually exited the system now because of the stress associated with it, and the third one's actually taken a whole or sideways career path. So I'll, I'll say that the stress of this process not only has it affected us, but our staff were under enormous pressure, and it's and just not. It's just not the improvement. Like they, no. they'd skip up the hallway, just so excited with people getting normalised blood glucose, and just saying it's something they just couldn't believe could happen in practice. To actually see people empowered, taking back control of their health, um, it was such an exciting time, and we really did. We were very honoured to be able to support the community and share that with our community. But, but ultimately, the ruling against me by APRA uh, meant, meant, meant that we had to um, or, you know, separate ourselves off from the team. And they've had to um, downsize, but they're still effectively making a difference in the community now and still offering that support. So they may have shut me down on that arm, but that the result of everything and certainly the clearance of my name by the medical board has really opened up the doors to allow doctors, other healthcare professionals, and an increasing number of dietitians around Australia and the world to actually stand up against, well, their own associations. Pressure. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you this question about it then. So you're a young high school student. You want to have a career in helping people and you become a dietitian. You know, it's a very noble choice because obviously you have the right intention to help people. So you go along, you, you enroll, you get accepted, you go to the university. What is the university teaching? Are they teaching that low carb can help people, especially to normalize their blood sugars? Or what are they being taught? And where is that information coming from? Do these students, after the three or four years of being at university, do they come out of that with knowledge that can potentially help people or potentially be disastrous information for somebody? I don't have direct access to every dietetics student's current curriculums, but we certainly have a lot of feedback from current students and very recent students about their curriculums. They're still teaching the old ways. They're still teaching the low-fat mantra. They're teaching the benefits of vegetarianism, teaching the benefits of veganism, and I'm deeply concerned about because of the potential long-term effects on young mothers and and babies which are being born at the moment on low-fat diets. So their textbooks still haven't changed. 
There are some students who have caught up with myself, either by uh, email or by actually coming along at meetings, who actually understand that their course is wrong. And they find it quite challenging. A few of them have actually approached their lecturers, and I'm delighted to hear that some of the lecturers are saying, well, actually, there is something in low carb, but we still can't teach it because it's not, you know, it's outside of our, our parent body guidelines. So we've still got a generation of dietitians that are being, uh, are graduating with what I call disinformation. It's beyond misinformation. It's deliberately inserted into their courses and their textbooks. Uh, we've got several of their textbooks. I've gone through them and it, it's deeply disturbing, Pete. I mean, that's their education and that, that's what they're taught. They're not allowed to question their teachers. And when they Same do. With medicine. Yeah, and when they do, they find their, their pathways obstructed. It's much easier to you know, travel the path of read, repeat, reward, which has been um, medical education, nursing education, dietetic education for a long time. There are some students questioning. There are some dietitians out there in the community now who are actually openly advocating and promoting the benefits of a low-carb, healthy-fat lifestyle. You know, it's individualised, but as you know, you could probably individualise this for 95% of the population that's going to benefit them. But I actually think that the community are starting to lose faith in these self-appointed peak bodies, whether or not it's the Dietitians yeah. Association or the Heart Foundation last week or Diabetes Australia, who are you know, coming out there and saying, well, we're the peak bodies. You have to trust us, even though we're completely conflicted with uh, vested interests, whether or not they're commercial or ideological. And, I mean, the Heart Foundation just recently, you know, and come on out, guys, and say how much you're actually funded by the by these associations before you then come out and tell us what I'm supposed to eat. So I personally have lost faith in these self-appointed associations, and I think the community are finding the same because they go to dietitians, they don't get any benefit. And you have to remember, like doctors, dietitians fear regulation. The DAA is their regulatory body as well as their accreditor, and they don't um, have to answer to anybody. So the DAA, APRA, they have so much power as well. And understanding when you are educated for four years, you've gone to university, you have to believe that what you've been taught is the right thing. So it's a really difficult space, I think, for any young person to find themselves in and then to be challenged that your education may have been compromised or completely compromised, is a really, really hard thing and a lot of people defend. I think the scariest thing is in Australia, we have a Dietitians Association of Australia that are defending massively that they are paid. Documents I uncovered show that the DAA were paid to influence, protect and actively defend cereal and grains messaging and sugar and to use their members to do it. So, Half the time, the members don't even realise they're being manipulated in that way. I mean, they wouldn't have any idea. So this is very, very concerning. Those documents that were uncovered between 2013 and 2014 show that the cereal industry were in one contractual agreement with one body, and it was the Dietitians Association of Australia to promote and to influence, protect, and actively defend the benefits of cereal and sugar. At the same time that we have that association defining that they're the peak body for nutrition for the, the country, 
and also the ones that are being paid by the uh, NHMRC to write the dietary guidelines. And also Gary's Hospital gets a letter within a very short time of these documents being worked out and this association, this sponsorship partner and the DAA CEO at the time writes to Gary's Hospital to demand that he be silenced. I hope your listeners are as disturbed as we are. I mean, we've had a banking royal commission in Australia which was showing how deep the influence has been of the banking industry on our wallets. And here this is more critical. We've actually got the processed food industry at the highest level directly influencing dietary guidelines of Australia. And we know that a high carbohydrate, high sugar load, cereal load, is actually associated with metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, for all the problems of obesity, diabetes that we're faced at the moment, mental health issues, you know, whether or not we go right through to cancer, autoimmune disease. And it's being directly influenced by the processed food industry. There should be a Royal Commission into it. And I'm fascinated how reluctant the politicians are to go there. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's reluctance? The reluctance has got to be because it's thrown in the too hard basket. And I would think that there's a lot of pressure from vested interests and ideology as well. We saw one of the politicians come out last year and say, um, Fibre was wonderful. He, the document that he read out from the media <laughs> release was supplied to him by Kellogg's. I mean, the cereal industry are under the pump at the moment. We, we've shown that sugar uh, is bad. We know that the refined carbohydrates in excess are bad. So the last thing, the last bastion that the cereal industry can hang on to are the benefits of fibre. If there yeah. are no benefits of fibre. I personally think that a whole lot of the the noise we hear, the white noise out in the community about the benefits of fibre, the gut microbiome, and that we have to have fibre in our diet are actually there as planted material literally by the processed food industry and the cereal industry. Uh, there's a lot of good work coming out now saying about the benefits of a low-fibre diet on the bowel. The gut microbiome is just as uh, diverse with having more meat in the diet. So, again, I'm, it's hard not to be cynical when we start seeing the effects of what, what they're doing with sponsoring uh, advertising. And then when you find the Assistant Minister of Health for the Australian community is actually reading out a document about the benefits of fibre written by Kellogg's, we start have to you know question the whole issue. I was recently involved in a radio program where showing the benefits of um, effectively getting rid of diabetes for the radio host, and we did that with a continuous glucose monitor. One day he was given some unnamed bread on air, and his blood glucose jumped up, and he felt crook. And uh, within hours, the um, advertisers were there to senior management saying we need to actually pull that. Hmm. This is, you know, at a local level, this is the... Very threatening. Threatening to the, t- the radio station. You and I have discussed this at a, you know, at a greater media level. And if we're right about what we're talking about, and obviously we believe we are, this means a complete restructuring of our agricultural sector, our food sector. It means... You know, closing down the vast majority of those takeaway stores, you know, selling highly processed food. It means revamping all of that packaged material in, in, in cardboard boxes and plastic bags. It changes the agricultural sector right back to what the farms need to be producing. And all of this are multi-billion dollar industries and all with multi-billion dollar financial influences and with a lot of voting 
potential. So the politicians, I just think that the vast majority of them don't want to go there because the implications for their local electorate and the wider electorate are just so complex that it's all being put in a too hard basket. And their terms are too short. Yeah, no, the, you know, the, the turnaround times of the benefits of preventative medicine and good eating is well and truly in excess of one electoral term, except for diabetes, where you can literally <laughs> turn around diabetes and get people off medication within weeks. So, I mean, that's one of the arguments I've taken to the politicians. I've said, look, in our local community in Tasmania, if we adopted a lower carbohydrate option for those people with diabetes, by my estimates, and it's very crude, it's somewhere about $250 million I'll save the public health system within one year. That's an enormous amount, which will turn around waiting lists, public hospital beds. And stop Gary having to do such horrific amputations. That's just me being selfish, though. Literally, the low-hanging fruit in this topic is diabetes. We can actually get people off their medications, reductions in their weight, much better blood glucose control and avoiding complications, and it can be done within weeks. That's the economic argument that you take to the politicians. Long-term benefits, we know are there, but that's a difficult pill for them to swallow. And this program, this chat now, is all about promoting the concepts and everyone actually getting up and uh, literally asking the question. I've got a concept coming that I'd like to really run viral that I want people, every single person, to actually get up and start telling their very briefly their low-carb lifestyle change and then to ask every healthcare professional they come into contact with, how do you feel about that? Where does that fit into my health equation? Where does that fit into my mother's equation? Where does that help my child? Where does that uh, affect your research? I want people to just get up there and respectfully just ask the question. And I see that we need to do that as a process because that's the only way. Let's put healthcare professionals on the spot because we know that the vast majority of people are going to get a significant improvement from avoiding processed food and particularly the refined carbohydrates and and non-essential sugars. After this whole ordeal that you've been through and still going through, and you're traveling the world educating doctors, patients, the public, and I just watched that wonderful documentary called Fat that uh, Vinny made recently, and, and hearing your story was beautiful to see that. What started off as a religious ideology which has turned into this behemoth that possibly can't be changed from the inside, how do you think we can change this for the public? And do you still think it is about religion or is it about money and big business now? It's It's everything. (laughs) It started off as a religious ideological belief in the Garden of Eden diet and the Adventist Church has been heavily influenced in, obviously, the making of the guidelines and the ongoing food guidelines and their influence you know, exactly today in, in the new guidelines, the 2020. But they are also completely invested at a corporate level in the cereal industry, the soy industry, and the alternative meat industry. The rest of the processed food industry has come along and it fits their model for processing food and to keep the whole issue going. And then you've got Coca-Cola that's joined in with the International Life Science Institute, and and their members are pretty well the processed food industry of the world. 
to actually continue that whole pathway of influencing guidelines and now medical education. Ellen G. White, who was the founder of the church and was still called the continuing and authoritative source of Bible truths in 2010, she said that medical evangelism was the purpose of every single member of the church and their health reform message was the entering wedge. And they used this health reform message, which is anti-meat, pro-cereal, grains and soy, to um, evangelize. And it's incredible how influential they have become, Pete. Uh, It's hard to explain to most people because in Australia, we're not that hugely religious, unlike America and the US and uh, the UK and other places in Europe, where the churches are foundational. They've been there for thousands of years. Come to Australia, we started off as a convict colony. And so we were here before the churches. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church started camp meetings back in the 1890s. So it was fairly early on. They were one of the earlier churches to come here. And I guess the way they teach, they don't evangelize from the pulpit. They evangelize from the bedside. And it's a really powerful message because it's such a purpose, it's such a belief. They believe that flesh eating will be done, done away with before the end time, before Jesus returns. And he won't come back until enough people have given up meat because it won't be worth his time and his effort. I think purpose and ideology is far more powerful than any financial profit you could make. But but the whole process is now supported by But they're supported. And Life Health Foods, which is an arm of Sanitarium, Sanitarium tends to make the almond milks, the cereals and different things, but Life Health Foods makes the soy and alternative meats lots of the frozen vegetables, and they put out recently in an article that they were leveraging off millennials looking for world solutions and becoming vegans, you know, or Meatless Monday or Flexitarian or whatever level they are starting to become. There's no doubt their food industries and the Seventh-day Adventist Church own 20 around the world, plus then again Seventh-day Adventists own even more. And these industries are leveraging off this push towards veganism, and then yeah, it's huge. So, I mean, you asked what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. What our first thing is that a realize the origins of our food guidelines and the influences mm-hmm. that are still there today. That's about the individual recognizing it, bringing it to the attention of the politicians, bringing it to the attention of, of health professionals, health professionals to say, <laughs> who "Well, you've got no idea." Do you realize you can turn around diabetes and health and disease by eating real food today? And that do you realize that your medical education has been completely conflicted for 100 years? And when I, took, I give this talk or talks along a similar line to healthcare professionals, they can't believe it. But then when they start realizing exactly how their textbooks and their papers and their research has been compromised, they get angry because they're not stupid people. They believe their textbooks, and when they find out that it's been, that it's been, they've been conned, that we've all been conned. And more importantly, our patients that we all started medicine to actually look after are actually getting sicker because of the advice we've been given. They get angry. And we often say, well, he or she, they're in the angry phase. Gary and I are past that now. Yeah, we, we're, mm. we're just trying to support those in the angry phase. But the way forward, I still think, is at the individual. Because if you're going to wait for the corporates to change, they will change related to buying power. They, they're fickle. They'll just go where the money is. 
And if they're waiting for healthcare professionals to change, well, that's my whole argument. Let's take our discussion in a respectful way, non-confrontational, to the doctors and say, I've changed my eating to a lower carbohydrate lifestyle. I've seen the benefits. How do you? What do you think about that? How do you feel? Where do you see that fitting into the, the next health consultation? So I think we need to take it straight to the face of the healthcare professionals. I honestly don't think the vegan movement can take that message to the health every doctor and say, I feel so much better over a long period of time as a result of it. They might have some short-term gains, but I don't think they can take the long-term benefits, which we know are there for those people adopting what what we're all talking about. Challenging the church is a very different thing, and the church beliefs, again, you can't change someone whose ideology and eternal salvation rests on a belief that they have to stop eating meat and they have to evangelize that message about stop eating meat. But I think we need to ask for transparency. In the US, a lot of people acknowledge that they are Seventh-day Adventists. In Australia, they don't tend to. A lot of the people that I've found have done research work with the Americans That's and they have a Sunshine Act in America. So they have to put down their at least their financial conflict of interest. In Australia, we have nothing like that. So it's about being open and transparent, not just financial conflicts of interest, but I believe ideological conflicts of interest in nutrition because it has such a huge impact on people and the guidelines that are being written. The Medical Journal of Australia had a massive supplement on the benefits on of the benefits of vegetarianism and veganism. Two thousand twelve. Yeah, two thousand and twelve. And every single reference from that, well, it was actually paid for by Sanitarium and the Adventist Health Ministries in the US. But this is to GPs, and if they didn't understand that all of the authors were either Seventh-day Adventists or paid by Sanitarium or worked for this or that, they would have no idea. They're just they're taking it at face value. Oh, this is research. They've got references to this. They've got references to that. When I found the um, American vegetarian position papers had been hugely compromised or influenced by Seventh-day Adventism, I decided to look at the Australian Dietitians Association of Australia. And their position papers in 2014 and 2017 were solely reliant on Seventh-day Adventists and Kellogg's. Every single one of their references, there's nothing else. And you just go, oh my gosh. When I told a couple of dietitians, they were dumbfounded and they said, the thing is, when the DAA puts out a position paper or a, or a guide or, or suggests something, they trust that association has done really good referencing, has, has really researched this topic to then get them to promote it to their patients and to find that there was only four references and that they were all And to find that that was in ideology. the same time frame, they were actually being paid for by the Australian yeah, Breakfast paid. Cereal Manufacturing Group. So this transparency is really, really important going forward. There is a role for Seventh-day Adventists potentially to support people who are choosing to be vegans or vegetarian because they've been practicing it for so long. They have got a lot more of an understanding, but they can't put these guidelines and tell everyone that it's it's unsafe to eat meat when it's based on their ideology. And I think this is where, as Gary says, it's about coming to the table and, and explaining what hat you're wearing. Mm. But coming back one step, a lot of people won't believe it, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Church. And if the Catholics told us that having sex was good and we all had to get rid of condoms and birth control, you'd question it. <laughs> and so the fact is they've just very 
cleverly become the major influences of the food guidelines of the entire world. And whether or not we like it or not, uh, and people are still disbelieving of, of what we're talking about, they are there. We, we spent years discussing this before we started talking about it. And, it's just, and others have now come along and cross-referenced everything we're talking about. And it's coming to recognise that they are major influences. And if and, someone and wants to have their personal, if it's someone health. wants their personal belief on anything, that's fine. But when it's being forced literally down our throats, and taking away our choice, which is what I talk about as well, I respect choice. But these guidelines are taking away our choice to include animal proteins and fats in our diet because of an ideology or vested interests, whatever corporates are also involved. You know, and it isn't fair. We're, we're suffering. It would be fine if it was based on pure science and biochemistry, yeah. but it's not. This is not biochemistry. This is belief and it's ideology. I found articles actually saying that one of the laboratories that was set up in, in America actually says science will be used to prove, not disprove, divine inspiration, which were the words of Ellen G. White. So it is a true belief system. And when you find out that the Adventist health studies, which are the ones quoted over and over by the vegetarian community on the benefits of a vegetarian lifestyle and longevity, that effectively it's just been made up and it's not science, even well, though it's, it's not, quoted. They, they've got people who've gone into those studies. They've chosen to go into it to prove their health. It's complicated, but it's actually really simple. <laughs> and I, I keep coming back to the biochemistry of a cell. It requires energy. That energy comes from acetyl-CoA and it can be sourced from carbohydrates, proteins and fats. And the mitochondria, which is in the cell, is unemotional. It does not care whether or not the food comes from plant-based or animal-based uh, food products. And it's only ideology, commercial interests, politics, propaganda that starts shaping everything that's around us. And that's the fascination of it all. The trouble is... If we were all getting healthier, I wouldn't be complaining about it. But we're not. We just walk down the street. We're getting fatter and sicker as an entire society. There's economic costs. There are environmental costs of all of this misinformation. And it's as simple as how about we get back to actually the true biochemistry and let's all openly declare our conflicts of interest and then we can all move forward. But that discussion is not happening at the moment. Well... Gary and Belinda, I just want to thank you so much for your time today on the podcast to share your wisdom, share your research and share your love for each other. And I think I said it to you last time we chatted, Gary, on the phone was that this couldn't have happened to a better person, to be honest with you, because sometimes <laughs> it just is meant to be. And the fact that you two met 30 odd years ago and fell in love with each other and as an outsider looking, the two of you will and are changing the world. And all I can say is I'm glad that your friend invited <laughs> invited you to be his wingman all those <laughs> years ago. To be the wingman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to this, this journey of wherever this goes because, as you said, it's up to us. We have the choice. Nobody else can force us. And little by little or a lot by lot, you are doing amazing things in the world. So thank you. And I love you both. Thank you. We love you. And, and as you are, and you are providing an amazing support for people too. It's about empowering people to take back control of their health. 
And when you're part of that, there's joy back in medicine and there's joy back in nutrition. Every time someone tells me a good news story about what they've done with their health, I get goosebumps. So thanks for being part of that journey, Pete. (laughs) We're all part of it, so thank you. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.